Welcome. Thank you for coming. I'm Greg Sesek from the Programs Department. Um, if you haven't picked up a copy already, our calendar writer's uh, uh, compass is in the back, uh, the June-July edition. Um, if you'd like to receive it in the mail or by email, sign up in the back or go to our website, prattlibrary.org. Uh, we're thrilled to have Jerry Sandusky here tonight, and introducing Jerry is Cass Noggle from the Alzheimer's Association of Maryland, uh, who is going to tell you, first of all, about her organization and introduce Jerry. Thank you for coming, Cass. Good evening. Thank you for coming out tonight to learn more about what Jerry's doing and what about the Alzheimer's Association does. Um, the mission of the Alzheimer's Association is to enhance care and support for all affected and to eliminate the disease through supportive research. We're very active in public policy to um, enhance care and for caregivers and, and, and care for people with dementia. We also offer a full array of services for families who are impacted. And I have more information on the table uh, in the back if you'd like to know more. Um, in addition to the many hats that Jerry wears, he's been spreading his inspirational message to families who are impacted by this disease. So we're very grateful to him. Um, as the play-by-play voice of the Baltimore Ravens and sports director of WBAL-TV, Baltimore's NBC affiliate, Jerry spends hundreds of hours a year on the air. His career has taken him from Baltimore, Maryland, to the Super Bowl, to All-Star Games, to the White House, and he's a regular contributor to the NFL Network. He's won numerous awards for his broadcasting, including two regional Edward R. Murray and Emmy Awards. He's also been named one of Maryland's most influential people. Uh, Jerry will discuss the value of name, the personal side of life in sports, and life lessons he's learned from his father. It's my sincere privilege to introduce Jerry Sandusky. I'm not a podium guy, I've got a big voice, everybody can hear me fine. Yeah. I might prefer to just be in the front of the room. How was everybody tonight? It's such a neat thing to be in the pub room at the Pratt Library. It's a special place, and I'm really quite honored to be here tonight. When I set out to write Forgotten Sundays, I thought I was writing a book about things I knew about. Oh, perfect. Even better, thank you. What I didn't realize was how much I would learn in the process of writing the book. Anybody here ever written a book? Doesn't matter if you're published or just you've written a book. So you you kind of get an idea. You think you're putting what you know down on paper or on a computer screen. And the deeper you get into the journey, the more you realize the process is teaching you. And so as I kind of had this symbiotic relationship with what I knew and what I was learning, three themes really evolved that I built the book around. And, and the first is the value of a name. And I know something about the value of a name. After all, I'm Jerry with the G, no relation. <laughs> It's how I introduce myself to everybody I meet, especially outside of Baltimore. I mean, no matter where I go outside of Baltimore, if people don't know me. I mean, you should see the looks I get. It's like, really? Dude, are you kidding me? That's really your name? Oh, yeah, like I make that up, you know? And, and so, you know, for the last two and a half years, it's really been an eye-opener. Last Sunday night, my wife and I were watching something on the OWN network, the Oprah network, by the way, you can tell I've been married for a long while. I'm watching the freaking OWN network, okay? <laughs> and, and she has a promo that comes on about Matthew Sandusky, the other Jerry Sandusky's son, and why he wants to change his name. My wife looks at me and she goes, Christ, not this again. <laughs> you know, it's been like that for two and a half years. So a big part of the book was the value of the name, the value of a name. Not just my name, but your name and what a name really means. Because over the last two and a half years, so many people have asked me, why don't you change your name? Why don't you just take the easy way out, change your name, and be done with it? So because one of the things I learned is that the easy answer in the short term is almost never the right answer in the long term, whether you're talking about your name or your finances or, or anything in life. I mean, that was the Penn State lesson. They took the easy answer in the short term and looked at the price they paid in the long term. So that was one of the themes that I explored. And... And it was fascinating, as I've talked to people, about the name theme because people do one of two things with their name. They either take it completely for granted or they treasure it. And if they treasure it, it's usually because it's been challenged in some regard. 
you've usually had somebody question your name or, or confuse your name with somebody or, or, or not understand your name. And a name's a really special thing because, as, and the book taught me this, I didn't have this understanding of it when I sat down to write the book. Your name is not something that you own. It's not mine to give away. It's mine in stewardship. It was my father's before me. It was his father's before him. It was his father's before him. It'll be my son after me. It'll be his son after That's what names are. And it's not what's happened to your name. You know, your mom and your dad, probably from the time you were a child, told you, take good care of your name. It's all you have. Right? Didn't everybody hear that from their parents? My parents never said, but be careful of somebody else screwing up your name. <laughs> so, you know, I've had to really take care of, of, of my name. And my dad, John Sandusky, left me with a really good name. And I intend to do the same for my kids. And so that's one of the reasons why I value names so much, because my dad was a guy who valued name. He was, you know, he was a huge part of Baltimore sports history. I was literally born in the NFL. My father was on the practice field for the Baltimore Colts in 1961 when I was born. I was the last of five kids. And, and by that time, you know, guys weren't hanging out in the delivery room, especially when you had five kids, you know. June McCaffrey, who was the receivers coach's wife, went out on the field to tell my dad, okay, you've got a fourth son. You almost have an offensive line. <laughs> and by the way, my brother's names are Jack, Jim, and Joe. Why I'm Jerry with a G, I never knew. <laughs> but somehow my mom must have intuitively known I would need that G. God, love you, Mom, because it has saved me. It's been my only out in the entire, in the entire thing. And so my dad coached for the Baltimore Colts, and you know, I grew up, and, and then we coached for the Eagles, and then he went to Miami and coached with Don Shula, for 20 years, and I was a freshman in college before I ever realized everybody's life didn't revolve around the NFL. I'll never forget the first Sunday in the fall of my freshman year, I'm at Scarborough Hall, looking out a window like that, and I see all these kids milling around on the quad. And, and I thought, what the hell are they doing? The game's on. <laughs> and, and it was the very first time in my life that I, you know, your blinders come off a little bit, and you see the world that includes so many other people and other walks of life that everybody's life didn't literally revolve around the NFL because mine always had and you know, still does to this day to the point where it was like a metronome. I knew the rhythm of the week based on what happened on Sunday. If the Colts won, we came home in our Vista Cruiser station wagon because back then coaches didn't make a lot of money. You drove station wagons with wood on the side and, and, and there would be a party at our house or in the neighborhood. You didn't worry about you doing your homework and you knew everything was going to be fine. You could ask your dad anything you wanted. And then Monday, he would go back to work, and you wouldn't really see him again until Thursday. But things were good, and the house was relaxed, and there was just a really good feel to it. You were, you were excited. And if they lost, and you came home, and you whispered, and you didn't ask questions, and there was no party, and you did your homework, and you shut up. <laughs> and you waited until your dad went back to work on Monday, and by Thursday, you were like, ah, oh, good, the tension's gone, but the tension would have returned because he was getting tense for Sunday's game, the next game. Because that's the cycle for a coach. It's, it's everything builds to Sunday. You, you, know, you play the game and win or lose, and then the cycle starts again. Boom, 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 boom. And, and so it builds and builds and builds. So the week after a loss, you didn't talk to your dad at all, other than, you know, the cursory, how's your day? Fine, dad, great. How's school? Great. All A's, great. You're doing great. You, know, you just lied. And, and then Sunday would come again, and, 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 and it wasn't just a game. It, it was, from a family perspective, it was going to be your life that week. You know, so if John Mackey caught a touchdown pass that beat the Chicago Bears, man, that wasn't just like, oh, great, what a great afternoon. No, no, that was your life. Because you knew that if things went bad, your life was going to change. Several years move forward and get a call at school. And anybody here go to a Catholic school? So you'll, you'll understand this. So I get a call. I'm, I'm a sixth grader in a Catholic school. And the principal calls me down. You know, if you get called to the principal's office, it's never good news. Like, oh, man, what's going on? So I'm just knock-kneed, shaking. Get down there, and the principal says, you need to call home. You can use my phone. Like, man, this is, what's up? So I call home, and my mom says, the Colts fired Coach McCafferty, the head coach at the time. I'm thinking, okay, this is cruel for Catholics. You're, you're bringing me all the way down to the principal's office to tell me the Colts fired Don McCafferty? Why? She goes, but there is some good news. Dad's the new head coach. Like, holy cow. You know, all of a sudden, my dad's an NFL head coach. It was the coolest thing in the world. 
You know, I'm sure I own the school. And I'll never forget coming home that night and seeing my dad. And I was so excited. And I ran up to him. I gave him a big hug. I said, congratulations. And he said, I think you mean condolences. <laughs> and I didn't understand what he meant. But he understood. He was an interim head coach in the NFL. They never last. They're gone at the end of the year. He already knew he was going to be in trouble. He knew that this was a rickety bridge we were walking across. But, you know, I was a kid. I thought it was the most amazing thing in the world. So we get to the end of that season, and the Colts are playing their final home game at Memorial Stadium. They're playing the Buffalo Bills, and the story's in the book. And I'm still looking at it from the point of view of, you know, as long as they win, you know, we got a shot of him being the head coach next year, and this, this could be awesome. So the Colts are beating the Bills. And from the day my father was named head coach, the general manager, Joe Thomas, told him, you are not allowed to play Johnny Unitas anymore. Unitas cannot play. Because Joe Thomas, who was, a, in my opinion, a bad guy, he had decided that he was going to trade Unitas at the end of the season, and so he wanted to distance him from the fans. I mean, come on. This, this was the all-time legend. So my dad knows, you know, he's got to follow the rules. And to give you a little background, my dad was a World War II veteran, went from high school graduation to La Havre, France, shortly after D-Day, was a sergeant in the Army, was a Catholic, was an assistant coach. He was a guy who knew how to follow rules. He believed in structure. He knew how to follow rules. Colts are beating the Bills. Marty Domery's the quarterback, comes to the sidelines, got a little bit of a gimp. My dad looks at him. He said, that hip looks pretty bad. I guess you can't go anymore, huh? I was like, uh, what do you mean? He goes, I'm going to go talk to Unitas. When I point to you, you point to your hip and just go thumbs down. Just don't ask me any questions. <laughs> so my dad walks down to Johnny Unitas, who's sitting down on the bench, he's got his parka on, and he said, John, I need you to get into the game. Marty, Marty hurt his hip on the last series. He can't go anymore. And Unitas says to my dad, look, John, I'm, the, I'm not going to mop up for anybody. Don't do that to me. My dad's like, no, 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 look. Points to, uh, to Dom Rays, and Dom Rays goes like this. <laughs> so Unitas peels off his parka and starts to stand up, and the stadium goes wild. People are going nuts. It's the same game, you might recall it, where earlier in the game, a banner plane flew over top saying, Unitas, we stand. So Unitas gets up, he warms up, he goes in the game, he hands it off a couple of times, goes back to pass, his pass is deflected at the line of scrimmage. It's fluttering in the December air. And it's like that moment where a glass of milk is falling off the table in slow motion. And it's just hanging there. And you're trying to reach out for it. And, you're, and you can see two Buffalo Bills defensive backs coming right up on the ball. And if you know the history, Unitas' first pass in the NFL was intercepted and returned for a touchdown. And so you think, oh, my God, this is how it's going to end. And out of nowhere, a rookie receiver named Eddie Hinton splits the two defenders, grabs the ball, and takes it to the end zone for a touchdown. The Memorial Stadium goes wild. <laughs> and it's Johnny Unitas' last pass as a Baltimore Colt. So we're driving home. And this is going to be a good Sunday. There's going to be a party at home tonight. And I'm in the back of the Vista Cruiser, and I see my dad in the rearview mirror, and I make eye contact, and I said, but what about your boss? And my dad was not a man to ever use profanity around the house, just on the football field. And he said, screw Joe Thomas. And that was the whole conversation. You see, he, my dad understood, because we, we had this conversation many times later on. He got fired at the end of the season. Coached for 20-some years later in the NFL and never got an interview for another head coaching job. And I asked him, I said, if you could do that all over again, would you keep Unitas on the bench and possibly have kept the head coaching job with the Baltimore Colts? And he said, hell no. And I, when I asked why, he said, for that moment in time, I had the chance to do the right thing for the right guy. You only get a couple moments in time. And you're defined by how you spend those moments. Fast forward 40 years. My son Zach is a freshman in college. My dad has long since passed. Zach's a freshman at the uh, James Madison University down in Virginia. He's not really happy there. He says midway through, Dad, I want a, I want a more urban campus experience. I said, Zach, didn't you happen to notice that James Madison, when we were touring it, is in the middle of the country? There's nothing there? Now you want an urban experience? Translation, his girlfriend goes to Louisville. <laughs> so Zach transfers to Louisville. We head off to Louisville. We make the 10-hour drive. And 
snowing, it's January, the roads are icy, it's a mess. We go, great, Zach. Gotta have a girlfriend. Get to Louisville, we check in, we find out his dorm. We go to move him into his dorm. He's been assigned to live on the eighth floor of Johnny Unitas Tower. So we check him into the dorm, and there's a desk like this, and all the head residents are sitting there welcoming the new kids. And above it, right where the clock is, is a banner that's hanging there, and it reads, Unitas, we stand. And I asked these kids, I said, do you know the story behind that? They said, no, we have no idea. It's been here forever, and nobody knows the story behind it. So I tell them the story, and then I, and then I stand there with Zach, and I said, and the coach who put him in for that final pass of his career was his grandfather. They come jumping over the desk. They're hugging Zach. They're lifting him up. I look at him and said, if you can't clean up on this campus, you are no son of mine. That's the value of a name. That's the legacy of a name. It's not about just doing what benefits you. It's doing the right thing for the right people in the right moment and then passing that on to the next generation. So that's the major theme that I try to weave through the storyline of the book as well as giving some insights and glimpses into what life was like growing up in the NFL, what, what the life is like outside of the three-hour slice of Sunday that you see on the spotlight, on the TV, and the highlights. There's a real life that goes on with that. And those people all have to deal with tragedy and defeat that can't be measured in scores and, and, and pain and suffering, just like everybody else does. And then they have to somehow step back into that spotlight and continue to thrive and continue to produce. So the second theme that emerged as, as I put the book together was how men teach men to be men and how few words are involved. Ladies, have you ever been on an elevator and it's you and five other women? Maybe it's, you're going 10 floors up. And have you ever noticed that by the time you get to that floor, you all know each other's names, you know each other's relatives, you know each other's birthdays, and you're exchanging email addresses, and, and, and you know what your favorite flowers are. It's crazy. If you put five guys on that same elevator, we'll go to 10 to 1 to 10 to 1 to 10 and never even look at each other. Guys don't, don't use words nearly as much as women do. I know it's kind of odd from, from, from a broadcaster and a writer, but men don't teach each other how to be men using words. I know my father did. My father was not a man of many words when he came to the right thing to do and, and the wrong thing to do. He was a man of looks. Remember your dad's look when you screwed something up? You know, it, was, it was like an encyclopedia. It was all that you really needed to know. And so as, as I looked at some of the highlights of our life and some of the really important moments of our life and, and the really powerful lessons, I went back and tried to you know, pull back the words that were used and how impactful they were and how long they lasted. And one of them came from Super Bowl III. The Colts play the Jets, and you know, my dad's an assistant coach for the Baltimore Colts, and you know, everybody in Baltimore, we knew the Colts were going to beat the Jets. It was, you know, it was a three-hour exercise in the obvious. Well, obviously, the Jets beat the Colts, and you know, so we get home, and the next day I go to school, and some kid starts to say a lot of bad things about my dad. Well, I did what any good kid in second grade would do at a Catholic school. I punched him in the mouth. <laughs> the next day, I'm getting out of, out of the car to go to school, and, and as I get out of the car, my dad just looks at me like this, on the seat next to him in the front. No words. So I sit down, and I know this is going to be a talk, not a conversation, a talk. And he looks at me, and he says, because of the loss of the Super Bowl, you're going to find out that there's a lot of jerks in the world. And you can't punch all of them without becoming the biggest jerk in the world. Are we clear? Yeah, Dad. And that was it. That was all he said. And I thought he was helping me to get through third grade, second grade, after the Super Bowl, Super Bowl three. What I didn't realize was he was giving me the formula to use with my family four decades later when everybody started to corner my kids and say, your father's a rapist. When my wife couldn't go to the grocery store without pulling out her credit card and having people freak out. When people we had known for years started to say, I'm so relieved it wasn't our Jerry. Really? Really? <laughs> 
You've known me for how long? I was so glad I had just finished coaching baseball Little League. My, my son had gotten out of high school. Nobody would let, let their kid play for me on a baseball Little League team. So, you know, I, I had to get my family through this. I mean, it was unbelievable. One time we were sitting at a, at a sports bar having dinner, and we noticed, like, nine screens. You couldn't go more than one and a half seconds without seeing some form of the story mentioned. A graphic, a lower third on the screen, somebody talking about it. Every second and a half, 24 hours a day. My Twitter feed was just, every day, hundreds of people inviting me to spend eternity in hell. Every single day. And not nearly as pleasantly as I just shared that with you. They're out there to this day. Somebody put one on there today. Every single day. And so to say that it was disruptive to our life was pretty much of an understatement. So, you know, it was a stressful time, so I gathered my family together in the loft. And said, look, this isn't going away. This isn't going to go away for a long, long time. And because of this, there are a lot of jerks in the world. And this was precipitated by the fact that my daughter, who was in college at the time, had come home the night before and said she had been in a bar and some guy was giving her a lot of grief about the name and she said to him, cut it out, that's my dad, it's not funny. And he kept going and she punched him in the mouth. Your grandfather would have been proud of you. (laughs) But there are a lot of jerks in the world. And you can't punch them all without becoming the biggest jerk. But dad, no buts. We have a very simple approach. We're going to be a lighthouse, not a courthouse. The courthouse will take care of the other Jerry Sandusky. You're going to be a lighthouse. You're going to stand in a storm. You're going to feel like unbelievable pain and agony. It's going to be lightning. It's going to be thunder. It's going to be hail hitting every part of your body all day, every day. You're going to be so mad at me, it isn't funny. And then at some point in the middle of the storm, you'll feel this amazing release, at which point other people no longer control you, at which point you have complete independence of other people's opinions, actions, and words. And it happened for every single member of my family. And it wasn't easy, but I only needed that one sentence. And to this day, my kids will tell you, they were mad as hell at me. They wanted wanted me to give them boxing lessons. They wanted me to buy guns. They wanted me to be the American dad. Let's go buy a pickup truck and run everybody over. What good's that going to do? We would have just been the jerk family. We would have taken our name and just taken it farther down the trail. So that was the, the idea of how men teach men. You know, yeah, I know how to block it. I know how to diagram a tackle trap. I know how to pay a mortgage. I know how to do all the things men kind of learn along the way, but probably the most important thing my father ever taught me was how to be a lighthouse when you want to be a courthouse. And then the third theme of the book, the most painful theme, is Alzheimer's. Pretty good chance everybody in this room has been affected by Alzheimer's one way or another or will be. Cass knows the numbers. Every 65 seconds, another American is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It's beyond epidemic. And the book really helped me formulate a lot of thoughts in this. And, and I, I'm very careful not to be preachy in the book because I'm not a doctor. But as I experienced this with Alzheimer's with my father, I developed a lot of theories on what's going on. And the biggest one being that it's unfair to ask our medical community alone to solve Alzheimer's. We're looking at Alzheimer's as if it is solely a medical condition. And I don't believe it is. The reason I say that is as I went through the journey with my father, this was a man who, at the beginning of my journey in life, was uh, Mount Rushmore. And at the end of our journey together, I had had that experience where I looked him in the eyes and he didn't know who I was. When that happens, that'll turn the lights off for you for a while. But it really makes you think. And so with my father, I realized, and have had many conversations with other people since, For him, the decline happened five years after he retired from coaching in the NFL. As soon as he retired, he started to coach a high school football team. Just volunteered, went over and started to help the coaches and then the players, and just became kind of a fixture over there. And then 
he had a, an accident in the game where a high school kid rolled up on his leg and his cleat hit his, his leg. My father couldn't get out of the way fast enough and he had to get a bunch of stitches, but he didn't get them in time and his leg got infected. And, you know, typical guy stuff. We have a cut. We just, oh, it's fine. By the time he gets to the doctor, the doctor freaks out. John, you can't coach anymore. This is too dangerous. You can't be on that field anymore. Well, he may as well have given him a death sentence. Within months, my father starts to show symptoms of Alzheimer's. And I've had this conversation with many people. I believe very much it was a function of him losing his sense of self, his sense of identity, his sense of purpose, his sense of connection to his community. Did the fact that he played football and, and didn't wear a fa face mask in college and probably had 100 concussions have something to do with it? Probably. But I'm not, a, I'm, not a, I'm not an advocate of eliminating sports because they might lead to concussions. I'm an advocate of eliminating stupid things in sports that lead to concussions. Because for, for men like my father, and I asked him this many times, what do you miss? What do you miss? Do you miss the Sunday celebration? Do you miss the Super Bowls? What do you miss? So I miss the relationships. I miss practice. I miss a hot day in August when you're out of the field and you have this 22-year-old who, who showed up that day thinking he knows everything and by the end of the day realizes he knows nothing and you're building him back up again. I love helping men become men. That's what I miss. It wasn't even the salary. It wasn't the, the fame. It wasn't the being on television. It wasn't any of that stuff. But it was taken away from him. And when you take away somebody's sense of self and purpose and identity, what do they have? I don't think football needs to be focused exclusively on how we eliminate concussions. I think football and every other sport, every other walk of life needs to be more focused on how do we keep people connected longer? How do we keep people from feeling like they're a part of a disposable society where your productive years as a tackle are done, you're gone? How do we expand the involvement so that people hold on to their sense of purpose? By the time my father had reached the end of his life, was in assisted living. And this is not at all a knock on assisted living. It was just a shock to me. I thought once he got to assisted living, things would improve dramatically because he would be around other people his own age and he would be involved in activities and he'd be part of a community again. But by that point in life, he was just in a collection of people who were lost simultaneously. They weren't connected. And that's a big difference. And as I watched all this unfold with his Alzheimer's disease in the community he was in, with other people struggling this, I saw a sea of people who were lost and who felt forgotten. And the thought has very much been a part of me since that part of the cure to Alzheimer's is a spiritual cure. By spiritual, I don't, I'm not talking religion. I'm not here to define your religious beliefs. That's your business. I'm not here to discuss that. I'm just talking about the sense of connection to a higher power as well as to a community that anchors you and lifts you simultaneously. We all have that in our lives. And when we lose that, we lose more than just the byline on our business card. And so for me, with Alzheimer's, watching my father go down this slope where at the very end he forgot everything, he forgot that as an 18-year-old. He boarded a ship in fatigues and, and sailed to France and fought in World War II. He forgot that he was the first All-American at Villanova. He was the 16th player taken in the NFL draft. He forgot that he coached for five decades in the NFL, that he coached in four Super Bowls. He forgot that he had a Super Bowl ring. He forgot the names of every one of his kids all blank. An entire amazing life. Which leads me to the thought that when the older members of our community no longer feel forgotten, then perhaps we will stop the epidemic of the older members of our community forgetting. And that's why I say Alzheimer's is not just a challenge for the medical community. It's a challenge for the community that involves medicine. So these are the three themes that I wove into Forgotten Sundays. And the title came from Alzheimer's. 
because it was, poof, such a tough thing to deal with, watching my father lose his memories week by week, piece by piece, until they were all forgotten. And then to see my kids and the players my father coached and the lives he touched and the kids at Louisville, I realized there are no forgotten Sundays. That's the measure of man. It's the imprint we leave behind. And when you're walking on the beach, you leave an imprint. And because you're looking forward, you don't see that imprint. But everybody who walks on the beach after you sees it. And my father's was a big imprint. And that's the story behind the book. Questions? Thank you very much. He was 75 years old when he started to show the first symptoms of Alzheimer's, and he was 80 when he died. 80? 80. Yeah, he, he went down fairly quickly. Right. As Cass will tell you, it comes in all shapes, sizes, forms. There's no length. There's no cure. There's and the guy can be shrugged, shrugged. Right. He also, I think he got a reason. I don't know how long he had. And he was a functional. I mean, he had So here's the great takeaway from Alzheimer's. And it was, a, again, men use very few words to teach the most powerful lessons. Near the end of my father's life, my brother Jim and I are sitting with him in, in a beautiful sunlit kind of reception room in his assisted living facility. And we're watching TV, and it's like old black and white TV, and, and my dad's just staring at the screen. And then all of a sudden, this whole Jimmy Cagney movie comes on. And it was like somehow that unlocked this lever in, in his brain, and things like sync back up. Cass and I have had this conversation with Alzheimer's patients at different points in the journey, there are these little slivers of time where it all lines back up. It's like a computer screen that's dying, but that, that day it works. And for this little two-minute slice of time, my dad was totally present. All of a sudden, he looked at us and goes, hey, Jim and Jerry, God, it's so good to have you guys here today. Huh? And we had this lucid two-minute conversation. And near the very end of his lucidity, he started to get very emotional, and he said, I never thought it would end like this. And then he looked at us and he said, live now. Don't wait. Live now. And music, music, um, I just read something recently, but I've watched a lot of the news, medical news about all time, because I'm worried too. And, and they said recently about music being a big uh, catalyst too, right. especially about our generation of the 60s, all the great music we have. Uh, when you hear a certain love song or a certain song that reminds you, and they, they come out of it. With the song. Yeah, music will take you back. And, may, and maybe, it was the, maybe it was the musical score in the Cagney movie, but I just knew it was, you know, it was like a World War II era movie that I'm sure he'd seen a thousand times in his life, and it just, it just lined up for those, those two minutes. Did, did your dad ever comment about uh, the evolution of NFL football from a simpler time to a big business, mm-hmm. that sort of thing? We had a lot of conversations. The only thing that ever bothered my father about the evolution of it was the salary cap. Not from a business point of view. He understood the need for it. It made sense. And he liked the competitive quality that it created. But what he didn't like about it as a longtime coach was he didn't like the fact that maybe on, on the eight players he was keeping on his offensive line, maybe you were the eighth best player. But he was going to have to keep you because you were less expensive than you. Even though you were better and you had earned it, you got the spot because they had to squeeze you under the salary cap. That was the only thing, really, in all the years that, that we had talked about that absolutely drove him nuts. He couldn't... It, it was a big reason why he finally did retire at age 70. Because he's like, ah, just, 
I can't keep telling the kid who deserves to be on this team that he can't be on the team because, and I won't use the language he shared, but because some bleepity bleep accountant on the third floor is telling me this kid doesn't fit under the salary cap. That was the thing that really drove him most nuts. But, you know, as the players evolved and, and, and as they changed, and at my dad's funeral, it was, a, it was a, like one of those snapshots that you'll always hold in your mind because you saw the progression of the NFL based on his pallbearers. His oldest, youngest, his oldest players were smaller, and his current players were giants. And you could literally see, you know, guys who used to be 265-pound tackles at the end of the casket were guys who were 370-pound tackles. And so he saw the whole game evolve from no face mask to multi-million dollar business and Super Bowls. And, but at the end of the day, you know, when he, when he played in the NFL, the, the, the demographic breakdown was probably you know, 90% white, 10% African-American. And today it's 72% African-American and 18% white. He never commented once on that. Because football teaches you to be colorblind. Because it's a merit system. And that's why he didn't like the salary cap. You were on that team because you earned that spot. And once you were on that team, you were brothers. And you, you did everything for each other. Same as war. I mean, it's literally, I, I, I believe football is the way a society, in a healthy way, exercises its warring instinct. I mean, it's all the same categories. It's got a good guy and a bad guy. I think of World War II. Think of the Ravens and the Steelers. Clearly, the Steelers are German. <laughs> right? Clearly. Right. He played for the Cleveland Browns for six years and the Green Bay Packers for one. And, and the Browns he played on, how I, think of the irony here. So he plays for the Cleveland Browns, and the Browns eventually come to Baltimore, and I become the play-by-play voice of the same franchise that he played for. That's a pretty cool thing. And he played for the Packers for one year. Uh, two more questions, real fast. Uh, what, position, what position was he a coach of? He was an offensive and defensive line coach throughout his career. I have two. My daughter Katie is in New Orleans. She's in fashion. She works in fashion and marketing for a, uh, a design company in New Orleans. And, and just got a matter of fact, got a full-time job last week. So I'm thinking, whew, I might get her off the payroll here soon. Because, <laughs> man, does she like expensive clothes. And, and Zach is a 19-year-old rising sophomore at Louisville. Okay. Played baseball and football in high school and mercifully does not play in college. Because as much as I love football, man, I hated seeing my son get hit. Right? By the way, you know the number one fear the NFL has for the future? That's why they're doing everything they're doing about tackling techniques and concussion research and everything. Do you know who they fear the most in America today? Bam, mothers. They're afraid of mothers not letting their sons play football. That is the driving force. Fortunately, in that situation, my mother had passed. My mother died in 1985. As you'll see in the book, there's a fair amount of tragedy my family had to deal with. And my mom, my mom died in 85, and that's part of the book was, when my mom died, I had just started my broadcasting career. I was just right out of college. I had moved back to South Florida. And so I was actually living with my parents. Translation, free rent. And so when she was going through uh, treatment in the hospital, I just stayed with my dad. And then after she passed, it was me and my dad and another Dolphins assistant coach who had just moved to town. It was the three of us living together with, a, with my mom's dog. It was three men and a dog. And none of us had much in the way of life skill. We didn't know a lot about sports, but none of, us, none of us could cook. The only one who could cook was me, and all I could cook was spaghetti. So every, every weekend, I would cook. I had this huge collar, this huge pot. I would cook this huge you know, five, six gallons of, of spaghetti, dump jarred sauce in there, leave it on the stove. And when, the, when you ran out of spaghetti, you were on your own for the rest of the week. That's when you'd have to, you'd have to eat out, but you'd always have to bring leftovers back for the dog. Because all of us work crazy hours, and we might or might not get to the grocery store to pick up dog food. So at any given time, if we were eating dinner at a table, you'd see three guys and a dog at the table. And it was a barn by the time we were done with it. So my father gets remarried. Another part that, that I explore in the book, um, there are many things I think you're genetically wired to handle. Sad as it is, you're genetically wired to handle the death of your parents. 
you're, you're genetically wired to handle the birth of your children. You're not genetically wired to see your parents get remarried. And because I'd been through so much with my dad, I really didn't like the woman he chose. I still don't really care for her. Luckily, I, don't, I haven't dealt with her since he died. But, because we had done so much together, he asked me to be his best man, which was an enormous honor, but I was completely torn because I felt like I was betraying my mother. I didn't feel like he had let enough time pass. At the same time, in hindsight, it's really easy for me now as a 52-year-old man to realize he did not want to live the rest of his life eating spaghetti with a dog at the table. <laughs> you know, so I didn't really have a handle on that at that time. And so I really try to, in the, in the book, I explore the, you know, the, the conflict of emotions that you go through dealing with all of that. So, so my mom was long gone, and it was the second wife who, who had to deal with all that. What year did you know you wrote that? 2006. Sure, sure. I'll get to everybody, don't worry. They'll hold the news. My mom died at 58 of lung cancer. She actually died of, technically she died of lung cancer. She died of a broken heart. A story in the book is, um, when I was a high school senior, 1978, my brother died. And if you've ever been through that, I was 17. I'm 52 now. What's the math? 35 years later? Still like it was yesterday. Blew up my family. But we still had to somehow go on. You know, he had, my dad coached the next game. My mom never really recovered. And I, and I don't say that with any criticism. My mom spent literally every day the rest of her life at the cemetery. She would visit the cemetery. My father really couldn't go to the cemetery. You know, but we'd go every Sunday before the game for home games, you know, just trying to find something. And so one of the real motivators to writing the book is that mine is not the only family that's dealt with tragedy. A lot of the people you see and what you think are celebrity roles or envious roles or wouldn't you love to have that job role have all this stuff going on behind them that you don't know about and I was very critical as a young man of how my dad dealt with some of it and it wasn't until he was gone that I realized the enormity of his strength and the immenseness of his depth as a man After, at his funeral a woman comes up to me and said, you probably don't remember me, but I was one of the nurses on the ward when your mom was dying of cancer. And she said, I just want to share something with you that you probably don't know. She said, every night your father would come to the hospital long, long after visiting hours. His coaches worked. My mom died in December during football season. Coaches work till midnight, always have, still do. So your dad would come to the hospital and he would sit by your mother's bed. And she would have a hard time sleeping because of the pain medication and he would sing to her. My dad had this magnificent tenor voice. I mean, he could have been one of the Irish tenors. Just gorgeous voice. Wish I had it. It was spectacular. It was an unbelievable singer. And she said... All the nurses would lean around the corner and listen in and say, I hope when I die, I die to a sound like that. I did not know that. Because my dad never told me. Because as I have learned, a real man wouldn't. And somebody please ask me a funny question right now. <laughs> what, what was Sandra Shaw really like? 
She was really nice. <laughs> yes, sir. Where'd you get those socks? Um, in, my, in my dresser drawer. I told you, my daughter is way into fashion, so she'll get me all kind of crazy socks and ties and, and shirts and pocket hankies. Ladies, know, ladies get to all the fun accessories in life. Guys only have a couple of things. We've got socks, pocket hankies, ties, shirts, cufflinks. You've got to make the most with what you have. But thank you for that bailout question. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. I just want uh, my um, family moved to Florida in 1968 from Baltimore, and my father always said that uh, Coach Shull followed him down there. Do you have any? I'd just like to hear you talk about Ursay. Bob Ursay, yeah, you know what? Bob Ursay, God. Oh. <laughs> Bit of a hanky, I want to break into a cold sweat. Here's what I remember about Bob Ursay, because growing up with the Colts, I'll, I'll never forget. So Ursay buys the team, and most people probably don't even realize that. Did you know Bob Ursay did not buy the Baltimore Colts? He bought the L.A. Rams, and they traded them. He traded them with Carol Rosenblum. It's the only time you know, players get traded all the time. They traded teams. So, so Ursay trades the Rams and gets the Colts, and Rosenblum trades the Colts and gets the Rams because Rosenblum wanted to get out of town. He, he, he wanted to live on the West Coast, and so they make this deal. So Ursay comes to town, and, and the Colts are this storied, storied franchise. And, and I can just tell from some of the things my dad's saying that th- this isn't going to go well. And after the first game, they lose. They get crushed by the St. Louis Cardinals, which was like unheard of. And, and so Bob Ursay, after the game, if you remember 33rd Street, Old Memorial Stadium, in the, there was the main entrance you went into at the back of the horseshoe, and then off to the right there was a little tunnel that led to the Colts' locker room, and the families would all huddle back in that kind of dank, dark tunnel so Ursay comes barreling through there with a couple of his cronies, and he is just hammered drunk. <laughs> Plows the, the group of the guys just kind of push. I'm, I'm just a kid at the time. Just push me to the side, pin me up the wall. They come blowing through, and he goes into the locker room, and he's looking for Bobo Smith, <laughs> a.k.a. Bubba Smith. And, and so we get done, and, and I, I mentioned something to my dad in the car ride about Bob Ursay. seemed like he was a little bit of an unusual. He goes, oh, that's trouble. That's a real problem there. He was, Bob Ursay is the kind of guy that to me, that's the reason the inheritance tax is so high in America. Because we don't want people like that having the right to pass their money along. Because <laughs> there's a pretty good chance the gene pool's not going to be that sharp either. Now, his son, Jim Ursay, has been a much better owner, but clearly has fought his own demons. And I'm not advocating a high inheritance tax. I'm not a fan of that, but that's, I could tell right from the start that, wow, how could somebody have made so much money in one business and be so bad at another business? It was, yeah, it was, it was a nightmare. And my dad, you know, my dad, he didn't talk about it, but in hindsight, I realize now. So when he gets the job, that's why he said condolences. Because now he's that much closer to Bob Ursay and Joe Thomas, and he knew, he knew the glory days were over. I was interested in all your remarks about the value of, of your name, or a name, the person's name. Did you, have you met any other, there's got to be other Jerry Sandusky's around the country. Have you met any others and heard this? If they're around, they're hiding. <laughs> I've met a Mark Sandusky who is Alex Sandusky's grandson. Alex Sandusky played for the Colts. Okay, there's a part of the Sandusky name. The biggest hassle I used to have was people thought I was Alex Sandusky's son. And I understood that because Alex Sandusky was a Colt guard, and my father, John, was his offensive line coach. And we aren't related. Alex Sandusky had four kids. He had a daughter named Ruth. We have five kids. I have a sister named Ruth. Alex Sandusky had a bowling alley in Annapolis and a winter home in Key West. And I only knew this from all the questions people asked me. I never met, you know, since I was a kid, I haven't seen the guy. And I, I can't help but thinking, he's probably so tired of hearing the question, how's your son the sportscaster? Because people used to always come up. I mean, I, I mean people would get, like, belligerent. Like, how's your dad? Uh, fine. Alex. No, John. No, no, Alex. How's, how's your dad, Alex? He's not my dad. Your, your dad, Alex? The bowling alley in Annapolis? Oh, oh, he's fine. <laughs> Right. And so for years, that was the biggest hassle, and never, ever, ever thinking there would be a, you know, another Sandusky confusion that would cause more problems, because it's not a common name. 
You know, there's Sandusky, Ohio, where they have, I guess, the world's largest wooden roller coaster. But, you know, beyond that, and, and all the Sanduskies who are involved, play, you know, are involved in football, either as coaches or players or broadcasters, and none of us are related. But no, I have not met another Jerry Sandusky. Uh, I think I heard some of your opinion of how to, let's say, avoid all, all, uh, Alzheimer's, but is there anything in your opinion that I could do or anybody could do to try to keep away from that? Uh, like, I'm, I'm sure you mentioned, like, be connected and live. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think you should avoid the word retirement at all costs. Change what you're doing. Do something else. Be knee-deep, be involved, be engaged, get into it. I think retirement is the worst word in our language because I, my dad retired and, and he got a pontoon boat and he literally drifted on a, on a, a lake. And in a, within a couple of years, he was drifting mentally. And I'm not against boating or, or, or the Sunshine State, but if you've ever been to South Florida, I'm sure you've been down there, like the Hallandale area and Hollywood, and you go into a Publix grocery store, I've heard people down there say, it's not a grocery store. It's the waiting room to purgatory. It's, it's just older people who are like totally, there's nothing going on. They're just killing time until time kills them. And to me, that's why you have to just stay out of the idea of retirement. You know, take your skills and use them in a new way. Develop new skills. Stay engaged and, and keep living now. Whatever now is, in your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, your 90s. And when your time comes, your time will come. But when it comes... I would hope for you and for everybody else, it doesn't come at the end of, of a long, black, dark tunnel where you forgot how you got there. And I do believe spiritually on the other side that the connection returns. But I also, another thing I've developed with Alzheimer's is most of the people I know who've suffered from it are really strong-willed people who have a hard time letting go of things. My dad was a bear of a man. And I was with him when he died, and as I stood by his deathbed, I'm holding his hand, and I remember the, the thought crossing my mind, God, he could still kick my ass. <laughs> when he was that physically strong, he, you know, he wasn't letting go, and I think Alzheimer's helped certain people make that transition to the other side of life. And I don't know that you'll ever cure that, because we all have to make that transition. But as far as Avoiding it, just stay engaged. Stay, stay purposeful. And don't, because retirement is kind of like in our society, I think the word just means there's nothing left. Bobby Bowden had this great quote, the former Florida State coach. Somebody said, why, are, why won't you retire? He said, because when I retire, the next time there's going to be a full house involving me, I won't be there to enjoy it. <laughs> you know, and it's that kind of idea of, yeah, it's one of the things I so admired about my father. Once he did retire from the NFL, he immediately started coaching a high school football team. And it might seem like a totally different world. And, you know, he loved that MacArthur High School football team, or St. MacArthur, St. Mark's, whatever it was, football team, as much as he loved the Miami Dolphins. You know, he wore their sh shirts with pride because that was the team he was a part of. And he loved those kids, and he loved the coaches, and he loved the environment, he loved the relationships, and... You know, and I think that's really, really the key. To me, the person I've been most irritated with the whole time was the doctor who said, you can't do this anymore. I would have much rather my father die on a football field, totally present, totally cognizant, with some kid knocking him down, killing him, than in an assisted living facility just drifting and waiting for the last days. Just a comment on what you said just then. When my mother began to show signs of Alzheimer's, somebody said to me, would you rather see her mind go down or physically go down? And I said, I can't answer that right now. But five years later, I went back to this person and I said, I will tell you the answer to that question. Because watching the mind go down was terrifying. It's an awful thing to watch. Look, nobody wants to, nobody wants to deteriorate physically or mentally. But this just in, nobody gets off this planet alive. You know, we're, that's the given. But you want to enjoy what you have for as long as you have it, which again goes back to the value of a name and the concept of stewardship. I'm as, I'm as big an entrepreneur and, and a capitalist as you'll ever meet. 
but I have a very different view on a lot of those things because of the experiences I've gone through. I don't believe we own anything. I really don't. I believe everything we have is stewardship. Sports is a great example of that. You don't own the Baltimore Colts. He held that in stewardship, and he screwed that stewardship up. You know, pick any building on this, on this city block. Show me the guy who owns it. Show me the woman who owns it. And then show it to me in 50 years. Where are they now? It's what you do with what you have for why you have it. That's really what it's all about. Because it's all temporary. And I don't care if you think the Christians are right or the Hindus are right or the Jews are right or the Muslims are right. I don't know if you come back and you're a butterfly or you come back and you relive the same thing a hundred times over or if you never come back. All I know is you got this shot. What are you going to do with what you have for why you have it? There's no ownership involved in that. Well, I was gonna, when you asked me, do a, when you said, can you do something funny, I was going to say, well, think of that, I think it was. Um, can you think of an anecdote that your father can remember about the Colts? Anybody do a practical joke that you thought was really funny or just like do something really funny? The, the biggest practical jokers on the Colts were. Um, Probably Shula and Carl Tassif when they were players. Carl Tassif was a running back, and, and Shula was a defensive back. And they did stuff that back then, if they did now, people would freak out and, and, and be going wild. For example, back then, the only media were newspapers and, and a little local TV. There was no national sports program. There was no 24-hour news cycle. And so if things happened, nobody heard of it outside the locker room. So one time, Shula and Tassif are out at a bar the night before a game, and they have to get to the team meeting. And even back then, the teams would stay at a hotel the night before a game. So they realize, they look, somebody looks at the watch and realizes, oh, my God, we've, we've got five minutes to get to this meeting. And they're somewhere in town here. And they realize that they don't have time to, to walk. They're going to they're be late for the meeting, and Weeb Eubank, the head coach, is going to find them. So... Shula and, and, and Tassif see a, run outside the building. They see a taxi cab there that's unmanned, but the keys are in it. They steal the cab, drive it to the team hotel, and make it to the meeting on time. Now, let's deconstruct this story for a second. They're in a bar the night before a game. Can you imagine that today at ESPN if Joe Flacco was seen in a bar the night before a game? They steal a cab and drive it at ridiculous speeds through the city to get to the hotel. So it would, be, it would now be deconstructed on CNN with everybody's security camera showing it moving through the city, a police chase. No, right, no place to park. They, they didn't park it. They just went to the front of the hotel and jumped out and just leave. They, they then abandoned the cab, and they make the meeting on time, and everything's fine, and there's no repercussions. You know, at the time, it's a really funny story, but in today's news era... It would have been this huge front page thing. They would have been suspended for eight games. They would have lost half a year's salary. The commissioner would have had to come out and make a statement on it. The coach would have had to come out and make a statement on it. You'd have every civil rights group in, in the city up in arms about it. See, the nature of the players and the people haven't changed. 22-year-olds with a little bit of cash in their pocket have always been jackasses. <laughs> I was. But when you put them into the national scrutiny... All of a sudden, we're expecting 22-year-olds to act like 62-year-olds. And it doesn't work that way. I'm a big believer that if you took every accountant in America and treated them like pro football players at the age of 24 to 30, you'd have the exact same percentage of them getting arrested for drugs, being involved with prostitutes, and doing stupid things as you see NFL players do. It has nothing to do with football. It has everything to do with being young and having too much money too much time. That's the part that hasn't changed. And so the things that were kind of funny stories back in the day are now front page stories, endless loop news stories. They're on ESPN. They're going in-depth. Bob Lee, outside the lines. The cab caper. What was really going on in Baltimore? You know, and it was like they're interviewing their eighth grade teachers. You know, it's, it's just, it gets completely out of control now. Whereas back then, it was, it was a funny thing. You let it happen, and you moved on. And the other one was, was Art Donovan, God rest his soul. I mean, Art, Art Donovan... Here's what my dad used to always say about Art Donovan, because my dad played against Art Donovan in college, and they were, they were friends for a long, long time, and then my dad coached them, and I mean, they were, they, they were thick as thieves. 
And so my dad used to always say to Art when they would be together and Schlitz beer flowing, Art, you are so full of it. You've told these stories that they're filled with lies for so long, you believe them. <laughs> and they'd laugh. And, you know, just... But that's the, part, that's the part that made it so powerful is that you know, in today's day and age, and the salary cap and contracts, look, guys make great money, it's awesome, but they play for a lot of different teams. Back then, they were together for six and eight years, and they were together. And so, you know, in training camp, in training camp back then, when, when, when they would have a certain point in training camp, they would just bring in kegs of beer and park them in the locker room. The guys would sit around and drink beer. You can't do that in the NFL today. You, you're literally not allowed to have alcohol in the locker room. You know, you can't, be a, you can't associate with gamblers. You can't, I mean, there's a whole list of things these guys have to keep track of that back then it was just fun. But in today's era of scrutiny, with money comes scrutiny. If we still played pro football players, what my dad made, I told you he was the 16th player taken in the NFL draft. The 16th player taken in this year's draft, I think he got like $21 million. My dad got $5,000. And his bonus was a steak dinner. Damn, I hope that was a big stake. <laughs> and when he finished playing seven years later, he was making $8,500. And so if we still play, paid pro athletes that money, they could still do whatever they want in their free time and nobody would care. When was the last time you heard about a problem a Baltimore Blast player got into? Because that's the kind of money they make. They're just not in the spotlight. So with, with big money comes big scrutiny. And if there's one thing Americans love to do, it's build somebody up. And if there's one thing they love to do more, it's knock them down. Did your dad have any, uh, I don't know if the story exactly what it was about, but her saying he was drunk and mentioned he's, he's a, I'm a good Catholic, was his famous quote. And you mentioned, you asked about Catholics. Yeah, that was, that was well after my dad had left. That was when Ursay was shopping the team, and he was going back and forth to Arizona, and uh, he was going to Indy, and they caught him at the airport. And they put together this impromptu press conference, and Ursay was just clobbered. I mean, he, he would walk around with a tumbler of scotch. I'm not talking like a scotch glass. I'm talking about like a big gulp glass of scotch on the rock constantly. Anytime you saw Bob Ursay, he had this huge tumbler of scotch, and he was always just crushed drunk. I'm not talking buzzed. I'm not talking like after a happy hour, hey, that was a good second glass. I'm talking crushed. And so he's at this impromptu press conference, and he started, well, what's all this going on? I, I'm a good Catholic. I, I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong. With like, here's a little rule of thumb, and I'm not a religious expert. When somebody opens up a press conference, well, I'm a good Catholic. <laughs> there's probably a problem we should be worried about. <laughs> Unless it's the Pope, there's probably a problem at play here. Time for one more question. Make it a really good one. Last one. Anybody? Yes, sir. I wrote it all. There's no, there's no ghostwriter. There's no co-writer. I wrote it all. Writing is one of my great passions. I, lo I love to write. Um, not sure what I'll do. I, I definitely want to keep writing because I, I mean, I've, I've written for years. It's just the first book I've published. Not sure where I'll go. I'm playing with an idea about team. What makes teams great? You know, what, why, why are some teams great? Why are others just mediocre? Why do others just positively drive us nuts because they're so bad? And one of the things that I've come across is that all, all, all teams are groups of people, but not all groups of people are teams. All you have to do is drive down to Washington, D.C. to see that. So my, I think my second book will be something along those lines of, you know, what, because I've been around teams my whole life. And even though I wasn't gifted enough to play at the highest level and, and, and you know, come close to playing in the NFL, I've been around NFL teams for 52 years. You know, I've seen the good ones, I've seen the bad ones, I've seen the mediocre ones, and I've always been intrigued of why are some teams so good they captivate us, they hold our attention, and we think about them forever, and others we can't get away from fast enough. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing that I see. You saw it in the World Cup. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many people in this room are really diehard soccer fans? Right? But how many of, how many of us were watching the World Cup? You know, cause, right, because it was USA, and we were a team. It wasn't just a, we weren't, not at any one point in time, nobody looked at those games and said, I'll bet 
47% of the people in this room are Republicans. I'll bet 26% are Jews. I'll per, I'll, oh my God, 12% are black. No. That's the beauty of sports. I don't care about that crap. That stuff divides us. I've always said this. Think of it during the next Ravens season. I'll wrap it up on this. At some point in this season, the Ravens are going to have the ball on the five-yard line. And they're going to be trailing by four points. And they'll be down to one play. They'll have enough time for one play. And that one play will determine if they win or if they lose. Maybe it'll determine if they go to the playoffs or not. Maybe it will determine if they go to the Super Bowl or not. And in the 25 seconds leading up to that play, if you happen to be at the stadium, look at what happens. Nobody turns to his or her left and says, I wonder if she makes more money than I do. <laughs> Nobody turns to his right and says, I wonder what her views are on capital taxes. Everybody just holds out their hand and adopts the two-letter pronoun, we. It's the most powerful thing sports has to offer. The rest is just smoke and mirrors. Hope you enjoy the book. <laughs>